Episode 3 of Movie Mumble, the monthly movie exploration and discussion podcast where we seek to broaden our cinematic horizons. I'm Scott Murray, your host, and today I'm joined by Joel Lewis. Hello. And Tim Gerard. Hello. As always, we are rapidly becoming our standard crew of three. Ooh. Good. For those of you unfamiliar with Movie Mumble, it's a monthly podcast where we get together, we'll watch a film, and then talk about it. It's that simple. We're sort of trying to introduce ourselves to new films, genres, styles, themes, that sort of thing. Or, you know, look at old ones again. We each take, a, take turns picking a film to watch, whether it's one we already know and love or something completely new and unfamiliar, and hope that we find unexpected new joys along the way. There aren't really any rules. Films can be anything, foreign or domestic, live-action or animated, new or old, famous or obscure. After we've watched each movie, we talk about the film and what we liked and disliked, and see where that leads us, whether it's discussing the film's context or production, talking about our own personal movie memories, or something else altogether. At the end of each podcast, we'll announce what we're watching next month, so you can sort of watch along with us. This month, Tim was our movie selector, and Tim picked Koyanis Katsi, which I think I said correctly. Yeah, sure. That's as close as we're going to get on yeah. podcast. <laughs> uh, we will be spoiling the entire film, as always, so... <laughs> so That's a weird sentence this time, I guess. Looking forward to the um, twist at the end. <laughs> I guess there's not much to spoil here, but we, we every month we do talk freely about everything in the film. He was dead the whole time! <laughs> Which one? Uh, all right. Uh, Tim, why don't you introduce the film for us? Okay, so this... Uh, this first sort of came into my radar uh, years ago. My uncle actually told me about this, which is kind of funny. Like, looking back, you know, I studied music in my undergrad and my master's and studied the music of Philip Glass and everything um, and never actually heard about this till my uncle told me about it. And it was a movie he had seen years and years ago. And, um, oh, I guess we're going to do this right quick, had rented it from Blockbuster. Yes! <laughs> we did it! We've done it. Under two minutes! Mission accomplished. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> so, Tim, what was it like when your uncle came to rent a movie from you? <laughs> <laughs> it was worlds colliding. <laughs> Apologies, please. But, um, but anyway, like, you know, this this uncle, like, he loves he loves tech and everything, so he's always got, like, kind of the best of the best. And I think he had, he had played part of it for me. Um, I think, you know, after he had rented it repeatedly, I think my aunt bought it for him. I figured exactly how the story went, but my aunt bought it for him, and then I think years later it finally came out on DVD. This was back when it was on VHS that she mm-hmm. originally got it. And, um, you know, so it was really interesting to have, you know, like, <clears throat> you know, to be introduced to, to this thing that I <laughs> I feel like I should have learned about in music school, because it's pretty monumental, um, you know, kind of learn about it through a member of my family and then kind of share it with you guys. Because um, I feel like it was kind of right up this alley where it's like, okay, like, this is a little bit off the grid but not quite it's a little bit um you know not not super art house film but like you know not not something you would have seen you know in theaters also because it's really old so mm-hmm. um do we, do we find the year it came out at the, i think it's 1982 82 okay 
So as That's evidenced in the which makes sense actually. Some of the we, we had many many remarks to talk about the you know, oh, the <laughs> 80s, but some of the fashion certainly felt a bit little, little 70s holdover. Yeah, yeah, yeah So that makes sense. There's, uh, Especially in the cut of the suits and the the material suits were made out of and <clears throat> wide ass ties and. Well, and I'm sure too, like with the amount of footage, it probably took years just to film it. So who knows at what point? You know, some of it could have been shot in the late '70s, and it wasn't until mm-hmm. it was, you know, put together and the score was done that it actually got released in '82. Yeah, let's see if Wikipedia has anything for us about that. Uh, it has a synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Uh, first date mentioned here filming production began in 1975 yeah that would make sense wow okay so not a not a very short turnaround time on this and then so this is is a collection of time lapse footage of basically every kind of landscape stuff just everything in the world naturally occurring or man made there's assembly lines in there there's like, what, shopping centers, malls, all kinds of... Like, mm-hmm. I'm trying to frame what exactly happens in it, because it, it's it's these sequences of shots set to Philip Glass's music, and it just kind of progresses. It'd be interesting to hear what you guys think of what the progression was or what everything felt like if, if there was a plot to put on it. Yeah. Um. Well, actually, w- one thing to notice, too, is, yeah, that the word kyanoskatsi means life out of balance. Mm-hmm. There are a few other definitions. It's a, it's a Hopi word. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's so, the one they picked. <clears throat> right, uh, yeah. At the end of the film, they showed us all the definitions, but yeah, life out of balance is listed on the front of the film. Right, it's like the subtitle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, that's that's sort of just to give you an idea of where this is going. And it, it, <clears throat> it, it starts with, like, beautiful landscapes, and you see, like, all these mountains and red rocks and... You know, one point there, the camera's like, you know, zooming over a river, you know, through all these other mountains, and it's like this glorious scenery, and you see clouds rolling, and then little by little, it starts to add, you know, man-made things and technology. I think probably the first man-made thing we saw was like some sort of like bulldozer or something, whatever that was, mm-hmm. with all this like black smoke billowing out of it. Billowing out of was it, 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 or know. was it the rocket launch? I think it was the rocket launch. Oh, that's that right, that's right. That was like the explosion. <clears throat> yeah. Because that was yeah, that was kind of like in the overture the of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, we kind of get rocket imagery coming through at different points in the film, and that the f- film actually opens up on some cave drawings, and I don't know if those are Hopi um, in origin. If that, I mean, they would tie in really well with the title, but that's how the film starts and ends is on these kind of strange. Strangely shaped humanoid figures on this kind of rock wall, um, which was interesting. There, there were kind of elements of this that kind of reminded me of like 2001, where it jumps from Definitely. like these, you know, oh, yeah. these, you know, these ancient, you know, ape-like people, you know, discovering murder and beating someone to death, and then immediately, oh, a spaceship in space, you know. Mm-hmm. So how it jumps like from you, like <laughs> I like how you s- they discovered murder, not they discovered <laughs> there, there tools. There were no murders in the film. We didn't see any. Well, it's a, you know, they discovered the tool, but you know, the tool use it as a weapon specifically for <laughs> murders. Yeah, I wanted to look up uh, the, the the cave paintings bracket the film. Yes, they are the beginning and the ending, but also and we, the first. 
first human-made thing was the rocket launch. Yeah. The last human-made thing we saw was a rocket exploding. I just I wanted to look up what that was. Mm. In the May 1962 explosion of the first Atlas Centaur. Oh, wow. And as I thought, not manned. Right. Uh, thankfully. Yeah, see, I always wondered that. never bothered to look it up. I, I, I don't know if this is kind of a sick thing, but I, I always imagined that it was manned. And just to, to me, it kind of, gave so much more weight to that That's how that I scene. projected on it, too, because yeah. with Challenger and... Uh, <clears throat> yeah. That's why I was desperately trying to tell what kind of rocket it was. And mm-hmm. we didn't get a terribly long look at it. And my uh, you know, inner six-year-old obsessed with NASA didn't have enough residual memory to right. dredge up what that was. But uh, it, did, it did strike me as a man, just looking mm-hmm. at it from what I could recall. And I'm very glad to see that was the case. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, that is strange in itself. You asked Joel if we thought there was any sort of progression. Yeah. I think overall I want to say no, but that there are progressions okay. within the film, just mm. smaller ones. Uh, first, of course, there's there's the just the, the, the bracketing of the rockets and the cave paintings. There's a juxtaposition between our beginnings and our our future, as mm-hmm. it were. But there there wasn't like I said, I didn't think there was a whole lot of overall progression because we start with just nature. And then we get sort of industry and infrastructure. And then we got people, which was a nice progression. Mm-hmm. And then it just sort of went, oh, okay, whatever, here's just stuff. Sometimes people, sometimes not, sometimes infrastructure, sometimes industry, sometimes some combination, the assembly lines, like people and industry put together. But there, it almost felt like a collection of smaller, I don't want to say stories, but just smaller uh, vignettes. Vignettes, thank you. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Something I found interesting is that when we start out with these landscapes, and then the first evidence of man-made things that we see post the rocket are mm-hmm. things that interrupt landscape. Oh yeah. So we see. I'm trying to think what the first image. The one that sticks out in my head is telephone poles. Mm-hmm. These things, that, and then there's cable lines and those kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, things that the on that the pipeline, yeah, yeah. Sort, and demolition. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it, that that first little vignette is kind of the the claustrophobia of man's impact on the natural environment, like right away. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it, it's there was certain hits in the music. I was dozing for for the first part because so, so last month Tim was our dozer, right? <laughs> Joel, I, so it's my turn next month. Yes, Joel, so don't yes. be offended, Joel. Okay? No, I'm just doing fine. my job. Um, <laughs> well, the movie I have in mind, it'll be interesting to see if you can <laughs> through it. But um, it, it just—it was very—it's very unsettling to watch something with no dialogue, and it was very like comfortable and quiet. So that that those first—I guess uncomfortable was the wrong word. But as we're watching it, it's kind of like this this swelling, comfortable music scheme going on. But then when the the man-made stuff started showing up, the music shifted mm-hmm. into having more staccato, like, scary note things happening. Um, and then once we move from that kind of uh, interruption of the natural landscape, the music shifts to almost this kind of, like, tinkle town, or tinsel town happy thing, like this quaint humanity kind of thing. It mm-hmm. almost sounded like a, a, a 50s era musical type sure. of music. Mm-hmm, sure. The one thing that really 
I didn't want to say heavy-handed, but then when the film ended, I decided I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was uh, <laughs> the, the whole thing seems to try to communicate that you humanity's not lifestyle, but just the way they are, ex- the way we were existing, was not sustainable, both in terms of the environment and our resources and ourselves and our own our own health of sort. Mm-hmm. Which, admittedly, this film was this was ages ago, and now. I mean, global warming is much more accepted. There are lots of national-level environmental drives and that sort of thing, and renewability is a whole thing. So coming from this world, it feels a little heavy-handed to me, mm-hmm. but I'm sure it, it wasn't so quite so uh, preachy, maybe, mm-hmm. back then. And even then, it didn't really feel that way for most of the film. The shots were just these shots of life. They were mm-hmm. just there. The only parts were that the beginning was nature, which by its very existence is touchingly beautiful the stuff that they chose to show anyway and then of course the first thing we see is demolition of that are are, are the scars the blight the the factories the production lines you know we don't see the the amphitheaters and the museums and you know they didn't show us the pretty things Mm -hmm. and then at the end when uh, they gave us all the main definitions of Koyaiskatsi about a a lifestyle that cannot be sustained Mm -hmm. I mean that you know, right? All the time they spent very delicately placing that nail, and they just you know <laughs> sort of grabbed the nearest sledgehammer and went God <laughs> <and smacked laughs> a few times. So I think maybe that that was the most overt message. Mm-hmm. In so much as you can say anything in this film is overt, but it doesn't it doesn't feel terribly aggressive. It feels sort of. Uh, sort of peaceful almost just sort of this is what it is mm-hmm. and so much of the middle of the film middle the whole rest of the film except for that beginning and end so much of that feels just it feels presented without bias in a lot of ways just because mm-hmm. they, they just set up their camera did their time lapse thing and then went here you go there was the footage right. they didn't it didn't feel like there was a lot of oh let's do weird camera tricks or focus on this when I watch a documentary, any documentary, I right. tend to spend the whole time trying to tear it to bits. Right. To go, oh, here's how they're biasing us. Even now here, sitting here right after watching this film and thinking about that, I'm having trouble coming up with much. Gotcha. Yeah. I really think it's interesting to bracket the film with one of the earliest examples of human creativity and creation, the cave painting. Mm-hmm. And then showing the the failure of what could be argued as one of our greatest triumphs is escaping the landscape, escaping our that space travel is the pinnacle of our creation. Yeah. And but what it shows is us falling short of that. Yeah, is that that rocket exploding is is it it feels less hopeful than it does kind of self-fulfilling or uh, um, self-perpetuating failure where sure. we're trying to escape in this way that we're not able to yet. You know, I would say, I don't want to say disagree, but it didn't. It gave me a different feeling mm-hmm. because just the fact that the rocket got as far as it did mm-hmm. compared to where we started with our cave paintings, holy shit. Right. <laughs> um, so that sort of showed me that like, even though the rocket didn't work, we can't stop because we've we've come so far and we can go so much farther. Right. 
Hmm. Although, admittedly, a rocket explosion is a pretty depressing thing to witness. <clears throat> Disk drive is out. Uh, we got go- <laughs> ghosts. Put, put that thing away! <laughs> put that thing right back uh, where it came Joel's from. Di- so out. <laughs> Joel's disk drive just popped open for no reason that we can ascertain. <laughs> Maybe you stole my technology ghosts, I don't know. <laughs> so, Tim, you... You're the one who brought us this film. You already mm-hmm. talked about how you discovered it. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about the, the tone poem, which is what this <laughs> film gets called. I was reading here on Wikipedia, they actually they specify a visual tone poem. Mm-hmm. On Wikipedia, at least, does right. call a tone poem a work of music, as you were mentioning earlier, that, that a tone poem is a work of music, and that these films, if anything, would be visual tone poems. But anyway, my broader point is that I've heard of these film tone poems. Mm-hmm. And I always go, oh, that seems really cool, and they sort of slide somewhere into the middle of my list, which is, of course, ever-growing, and then I forget about them. Mm-hmm. This is the first one I've ever actually seen. It's great, it's cool. But you've held on to it. Like, you own it. You bought us the disc. Mm-hmm. You wanted us, wanted us to see it. What about it appealed to you, that, that kept it in your mind? Had you go purchase a copy? Is it you know, you're, you're a composer. Was it the music? Was it that the music is the focus? Something to do with that? Or, you know, why did you bring this to us? Um, I think... Why did it stick around so yeah. long? <laughs> it's definitely, I think, an intersection of, of a lot of things for me. Um, you know, yeah, you, you're right. First of all, being a composer and the fact that um, there are a good amount of films that have scores by, I guess, what you, we could consider, you know, the contemporary classical composers that are more in the camp of like in the, the lineage of like you know uh, Mozart and Beethoven and then you know these composers who grew out of that tradition as opposed to you know the people who we know mostly for just being film composers um, I mean John Williams writes stuff for the stage that has nothing to do with film but how many people have heard those works mm-hmm. you know where he's more known as just a flat out film composer mm-hmm. whereas uh, Philip Glass had a reputation way before he did any films and he's done some films I think he did a Secret Garden was there was like a Stephen King film the one with mm-hmm. Johnny Depp I think he did the score to that he's done a few other he did the Truman Show um, did he really? I'm pretty sure yeah don't quote me on that but I'm pretty sure um, right, so let's go in underneath the title of this episode. Quote: He did the Truman Show. <laughs> period. Unquote. Unquote. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, so, you know, but he he's coming from that camp of of quote unquote, like I said, you know, the the contemporary classical composers who, you know, started with doing you know absolute music, just music for the sake of writing music, and you know, mm-hmm. this is sort of what I'm doing, and then got brought into this world like hey I like your music I want you to score my film so so he wasn't someone I knew of because he was a film composer and I had seen films that he has done I knew him as a composer for other works that he had done and then oh look he also scored this film um, also the fact that you know um, here's, here's a fun little story about me I, I like to bring this up every now and then just to remind myself of it so back in I think it was 7th grade um, I was doing art and music in school, both as like electives or whatever you want to call them. And, you know, I, I was pretty good at both of them. I mean, not amazing, but, you know, like I enjoyed them. And at some point, one of my advisors told me, well, you know, if you ever want to get into college someday, you're going to have to take a foreign language. Mm-hmm. And you don't have room in your schedule to take a foreign language unless you drop either art or music. Wow. And I chose music over art. 
and since then like the the half of me that was like a visual artist was just done yeah. you know and it's popped up every now and then like oh let me try some painting let me do this but but so much of my sort of life's path was determined by that choice and by that advisor being like well you know like like every seven seventh grader you know where are you going to go to college like yeah. I, I don't know i'm That's 12 funny because <laughs> you know being you know we're both younger than you and that language was assumed like the requirements you, you take a foreign language in high mm. school end of sentence if you want to get into college then you also need right yeah. other, other stuff you yeah know, the, the thing that was once the add-on has now become right. part of the mandatory. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like, kind of like a bachelor's degree. You know, that uh. used to be the thing that would get you a job. Now that's the given, and then, you know, <laughs> I wish it had gotten. And now even jobs. a master's isn't the thing. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so after that little side story, so, so, I, I liked, and I think this is part of why I like film in general. Like the idea of combining, or you know, having some sort of visual element. And combining visuals and sound is something that still really excites me because it's like, oh yeah, I get to revisit that half of myself that died so many years ago, <laughs> you know, and and say, oh look, this is you know visually stunning and sort of visually kind of has a progression, tells a story, however you you kind of want to see it, and but it's also married to this music, and and I thought the music fit perfectly, and that's sort of one of the things about Philip Glass's music. Um, so his, he's, he's considered part of the group of minimalists. And as far as I know, most of the people who are classified as minimalists hate that classification. <laughs> um, so, but the idea is that their music is very, very repetitive. Um, you know, a, a lot of times it'll, be, it'll just be sort of like very slowly revolving. Uh, it's, it's referred to as, as static um, harmonically. You know, the type of chords they're using, they're not sort of building with this progression of chords that, that sort of sends you in this direction with this, you know, increase of tension and then a release. It's more like, okay, we're going to pick these four chords and we're just going to repeat those over and over and over again. And they mm -hmm. find other ways to build tension by like sure. layering other instruments and sure. making more activity and rhythmic things. Um, <clears throat> so, so for one of these composers where if you kind of sit and listen to his music, it's like, uh, if you're not in the right headspace for it, you would get very, you might get very impatient and very irritated with it. Um, but for this, I thought it was perfect because as we're watching these kind of slow landscapes moving and the music is kind of like slowly undulating underneath that. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so I thought it was a perfect <clears throat> marriage of like the visuals and the sound, mm -hmm. um, you know, something that sort of, yeah, that does tell a story without telling a story, you yeah. know. Um, I also really like, I'm, I'm, I'm big into mythology and metaphor, so the idea that there's enough to sort of kind of steer you in a direction, but not too much to say this is the only thing this story's about. Mm -hmm. You know, you get to kind of take your interpretation of what it is they're trying to say. And um, I, I do feel that most of the time, you know, art is a, is a mirror and you're kind of seeing yourself in it. And I feel like it does a great job of allowing that, of allowing, you know, you see this kind of image of, of the world mm -hmm. and you're allowed to see... <clears throat> sort of what what you see in that image not what the image is telling you to see mm -hmm. that type of thing um and i just I, yeah i thought it was super effective the way the music does sort of build in sort of um uh the, you know the busyness of the rhythm and the layers and like you guys remarked a few mm -hmm. times like oh you know philip glass must hate wooden players because there are these flute lines that just go indefinitely and you know it's like where are they breathing you know 
and it builds to this point where all of a sudden everything just cuts out it's like silence and it. it's like you know that was one of my favorite moments of the whole film that you're just like along for this ride and there's this momentum that's building and you're like oh god like everyone's you know the cars are driving and the traffic and the people on the escalator and it was like and you're just kind of floating above it all you know looking down like okay good it's you know it almost gave this sense of you know and um I've seen this in other movies. The one I can think of specifically is Far and Away, when Tom Cruise's characters die and he just sort of like floats over everything, and then before he gets sucked back into his body. But like that idea of like, did, I think somebody even said this too. Are we dead? Like, <laughs> you know, you, you're just floating over everything after that, and it was super effective, super just you know like an amazing journey to be taken on. But um, but like I said, we probably had three slightly different journeys, you know. And, sure. Um, so yeah, I, I like that you said. You think of art at least partially as a mirror, mm-hmm. because with film especially, different watchers are always going to have different experiences mm-hmm. in a film. Yeah, even just slight ones, even just based on their own personal history. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have two uh, two white middle class males from almost identical upbringings but because of their different babysitters they're going to view a character differently right. mm-hmm. because some trait in the person they once knew comes up in, you know that sort of thing so it's uh, the simplicity in this is really refreshing to be honest there's sort of a promise that I don't have to look hard for anything right. or worry about what I am or I'm not seeing mm-hmm. it's just here for you it says, here you go mm-hmm. it's what it is have it and then that's it the person who they hand it to you just, just goes they don't want to know they don't want to hear what. oh what do you think about it? no they just say this is, this is for you mm-hmm. experience it and then just there you go you have your experience this is for you that was nice right it was yeah. really nice <clears throat> it was uh, it's funny because it's almost familiar and I think because oh, yeah. these sort of things happen in other places other films or TV shows do occasionally do much shorter segments of time-lapse stuff with music background and whatnot. Mm-hmm. This was so long that it was long enough not to, for me to get past the initial focus of, ooh, okay, ooh, what's that? Ooh, cool, ooh, right. this or that. And then move into the sort of nice trance of sorts where I'm along for the ride. Mm-hmm. Kind of letting and it wash over you rather Exactly. Than... And then move past that to the, uh, the 2001 A Space Odyssey. Ah, right. Right. Sort yeah. of yeah. <laughs> and then it ended. Oh, thank God. You know, so, um... <laughs> In that sense, actually, the length was it was very nice, mm-hmm. nice arc of sorts. Yeah. yeah, that I felt relieved at the end, partly just because it was over, but not because I disliked it. Right, um, like a roller coaster, sort of. You know, right. like right. oh yeah, I got off, and that was so satisfying and exhilarating. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm glad to just be standing still again. But mm-hmm. man, that was cool. Mm-hmm. Similar idea here. It was such a natural ending. I feel like if they had gone a sequence longer. It would have felt fatiguing, or it just it would it was lifted out at the perfect point. Mm-hmm. And the way they they finished with the the definition of the title of the film, which I'm not going to butcher here, but like the the and and then the translation of the prophecies that were in those chants um, mm-hmm. was a great way to kind of tag it. What you were saying about feeling familiar in these time lapse things, I think specifically this time period of. L- mid to early or mid 70s to late 70s to early 80s is like golden age of movies that I watched growing up Mm -hmm. so this is like this is what New York would look like in Tootsie 
<laughs> which I've seen a million times. I love that movie. Like, it, it felt very familiar in that this is the kind of America or these are the kinds of cities that I've seen on TV and in movies mm-hmm. as I've grown up. And it's this very specific snapshot of... It's, it's not really a period of prosperity, but it kind of is a period of prosperity in American history that was glorified in television mm-hmm. and film at that time. Sure. Because we were commenting on everybody's outfits and yeah. kind of this golden <laughs> age of, like, the arcade video game that we get to see them kind of time-lapse rapid-fire play mm-hmm. through, which was really cool. Um, something else that I really kind of fixated on was the quality... There's something about this era of filmmaking and this specific type of film to watch a time-lapse of traffic at night mm-hmm. that headlights become streaks and it's 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 almost like watching brush strokes move up and down alleyways and it's just really visually cool and something that I just I, I ate up every time it was on screen because they would progress through a day and you'd see people filling up a bus station or uh, getting on an escalator getting off an escalator like moving through lines, getting stuff at the grocery store, and then it would progress to night, and then you would see headlights from... I mean, they, I think they showed Californian highways and New York highways. I think at one point we follow somebody down the streets of Chicago, um, but you see those streaks in all kinds of different combinations, and that was really visually stunning, and it, it paired perfectly with music. That that Those visual elements were something that really stood out to me. Mm-hmm. I don't think I, I've said, I mean, we're at minute 30, I haven't said if I liked it or not. Obviously, I liked it. <laughs> um, and I was worried as we were starting it, because it, it has such a slow start, and I was falling asleep. I apologize for that. <laughs> but just, I was worried that we wouldn't have enough to talk about, it, and it's almost, there's too much to talk about. I was mm-hmm. saying while we were watching it that I wish I had taken notes. Because yeah. there's just so, so much to look at. Because it's, that's because it's a a, a different experience for each of us yeah. an internal experience another film presents something to you right as, it kind of guides you along it, it tells you what's there it tells you this is what's happening this is the story this is what we want you to be feeling mm-hmm. thinking or doing but this doesn't do that which means that if I'm going to talk to you about this I can't just say you know oh man well that one time when the hero finally beat the villain and you go oh yeah and there's just an instant understanding right. an instant set of things that are not set in stone, but assumed by most people, that can't happen with this. Because when I say that part with the Pac-Man machine, Ms. Pac-Man machine, you immediately conjure up whatever you were thinking or feeling right. about it at the time, and it's there's nothing at all in the film that guarantees that any of what that comes up in your head is going to also come up in mine. There's very little in the way of like plot touchstones or specific roadmaps mm-hmm. to okay, this exact minute that was supposed to generate this re- emotional response mm-hmm. in you as you watched. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've ever seen something in this genre and that mm-hmm. tried so hard at not trying so hard, if that makes any yeah. sense. You know, just <laughs> yeah. like you said about here it is, have it, mm-hmm. and then you're done. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think that's part of that's because like, I feel like so many people and maybe increasingly so, like have so much of a distinct point they're trying to get across and like you like use it you know before being very heavy handed about stuff 
Um, I remember one time years ago, a friend of mine saying how like, well, you know, it's it's the artist's responsibility, you know, to be an activist. And I was like, I don't think that's necessarily true. Like, you know, like it, it's good that there are artists who are looking out there and going, oh, look, here's some injustice. I'm going to do a work of art to really bring it to light. Mm-hmm. But I feel like other people just have their own stories to tell. And that's fine, too. Like, yeah. that's the great thing about being an artist is you get to do what you want. But um, and I feel like the the idea of the artist as an activist has maybe and maybe that there aren't more of them. I don't want to put my foot in my mouth, but maybe because of the internet, we're definitely more aware of those things mm-hmm. than, than you know. Like I'm sure people in New York right now you know, would be like, you know, back in my day, there were you know on every street corner there were activist artists, you know. But like you know, sure. again, if you're not living in New York, you don't know about that. But now you do know about it. Um, so let's just say maybe that it's in everybody's face a lot more than mm-hmm. there's this activist art happening. Um, but yeah, so to get something that you know kind of has a message is kind of making an observation. You know, I guess that's a nice way to say it. Like it's that not is a great, yeah, great description. Like it's not like yeah. you said. It's, they're not sort of like the you were saying about the documentaries. They're not right. trying to steer your opinion. It's just like here is a thing. Yeah. This is a thing that's mm-hmm. happening right now. There, look at it. Yeah. <laughs> you it's, know, it's, I like that you said about um, the internet and connection because mm-hmm. I, it struck me, especially in the first section when we got a whole lot of nature pictures. There were parts of that that were really great, mm-hmm. beautiful. You know, the, the world is a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. But but there were parts of it that struck me. I can't remember when exactly in the film it struck me. But I thought it was when we were naming places. That was what it was. Mm-hmm. We were naming Monument Valley and Horseshoe Bend and whatnot. Tucson, Arizona. Right. And mm-hmm. it struck me that you know, some of these places I can only name because I've seen them on the internet. Right. Because I go to places designed for beautiful nature photography. Right. And they go, oh, hey, look, here's Tucson, here's Monument Valley, here are all these places. But that if I had been living when this film came out, I probably wouldn't have seen these things. Ever. Maybe a postcard somewhere. Yeah, Yeah, or like we were talking about Monument Valley is the backdrop for most Westerns. If you see a Sabaro cactus here in Tucson, Arizona, Mm -hmm. like those, you would have seen them in other films, but there wouldn't, unless you went to like Nat Geo... And mm-hmm. we're flipping through that, and would have mm-hmm. seen their a subscription. Yeah. I just did. So, I hate when they call it Nat Geo National Geographic. <laughs> well, then why did you just? I I don't know, and I hate myself for it. <laughs> but but yeah, that that did hit me that maybe some of the impact of this film has been lost because these images are available to me with a few key presses now. Yeah. The time lapse stuff, all, all that sort of thing. I can just I can type. I'm gonna do it right now. Let me see. Traffic time lapse. Click or enter key or whatever I'm doing. I don't know. Okay, videos galore. Time tra- traffic time lapse downtown LA and DC. Los Angeles traffic time lapse in HD. See LA, HD. LA. See, did anybody else find Denver. the graininess of the time lapse just really really charming and authentic to anybody I else? Went, I went back and forth. Okay. Sometimes I just I didn't notice. Sometimes I noticed and it felt very real. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of the, the footage we see, a lot of the news footage. Yeah. Whether it's you know Vietnam War or 80s stuff, Challenger or Granada or what have you. A lot of this, when that was just how video looked, yeah. end of mm-hmm. sentence, you didn't have options anymore. Right. And because a lot of what I see from that time is news footage, it just felt real, comfortable. But then there were times when I went, oh, that's, that's so annoying. Why couldn't you clean this picture up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was one time... It was just a city shot. Uh, horizon and city and some traffic in the foreground. And the headlights were almost red for some reason. Yeah. And I can't, couldn't figure out why 
why that was if they were had done something to the picture with a filter right. or just the way the light was changing as the mm-hmm. sunset was causing that. But that particular shot really bugged me. <laughs> the red headlights. So I, I went all over the place. Right. See, with the, the, the traffic streaks that I was talking about, I was thinking as we were watching, if we watched a time lapse with an HD camera or a GoPro now, that effect would be completely gone. It would be, it, it, it's, I almost feel like mourning the loss of that lack of technology, that lack mm. of clarity, because it's almost like that when you see something out of the corner of your eye and you project on it that it looks like something else and then you bring it into focus and mm-hmm. it's no longer that right. mysterious thing. My dad said thing. the same thing. Um, we, this was when he'd, he'd, he'd moved away. He came back for something, Thanksgiving for Christmas, and he, he, Mom and I all went to a theater and saw, I think it was Public Enemies, the Johnny okay. movie. And I remember it because we still had two what I'll call regular movie theaters. And one, it was a newer, you know, comfier seats and the ultra HD digital projection yeah. sort of thing. Since then, all of my theaters in my town have now been renovated, but that was his first one that was like that. And he came out of it sort of dissatisfied. The movie was fine. We liked it. But he came out of it going, man, I just... The, the digital projection was just uncomfortable to me because the skin, there was, you could see the pores. You know, It was so clear that it didn't feel real, <laughs> he said to me. And it was something that I had never noticed or thought about until then. <laughs> yeah. So the, there was definitely... You definitely have a point that when you can see something that clearly, more clearly clearly than you focus on it in real life, unless for whatever reason you're studying an object, you know, right. a particular thing, it does take away a little bit of the immersion, the, the, the sort of natural comfort of it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say that there's this golden age of film and that now that we've moved past like this graininess or the, the yeah. mm-hmm. eh, let's go back to nitrate film. Yeah, and I mean, like, beta man. Stuff that's come out, like, I just saw Baby Driver. Incredible oh, yeah. film, could not have been made before this time period with sure. the way it's shot, and it's outstanding. But it's like, I don't think it's just rose-tinted nostalgia glasses that I've seen. dated things. this podcast, by the way, this recording. I, I, I've done it twice now. I'm no. the one that dates the podcast. <laughs> I am the one who dates. You're the one who dates? Okay. <laughs> oh, too bad we didn't get to see you know, Spider-Man Homecoming tonight. Uh, <laughs> There's anyway, still uh, time. You're, you're rose-tinted goggles, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, no, just, I, I don't think I'm seeing that graininess of film just through rose-tinted glass. I think it does add something, and it's important to the, the history and the... the uh, appreciation of film to see those things mm-hmm. and kind of just see that we've moved away from that kind of that 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 effects that we no longer can get but the reason we got it in the first place was because of its the the low tech nature of it its inability to capture it as true to life as some t- things that we have now would be able to mm-hmm. i in addition to the importance to film and film history i have begun adding to my film collection a lot of older films in particular and a lot of things in Blu-ray because, you know, Blu-ray's cool. But even even just, you know, not even Blu-ray. I bought Batman Mask of the Phantasm on a DVD a few years ago because it, Great I don't film. know if the Blu-ray existed or not. Tim, have you seen that? I think so. It's kind of to the animated series, the mm-hmm. Kevin Conroy voice. And um, I had a video cassette of that that I watched, you know, about a bajillion times. Yep. And of course, it was on TV a few times. I think must have been right. Yeah. Anyway, 
and I put the DVD in, and it, you know, had the whole, oh, we, you know, we remastered it for DVD clarity, and it just didn't feel right, because the picture quality was attached to the thing itself, yeah. to its time period, mm-hmm. or just to the way it was made. Something about the nature of the, of the film felt wrong when it was so prettied up. I had the same experience watching Independence Day on Blu-ray. Because I went out, I bought the Blu-ray, I was like, I'm going to see this, and it's, it's, it's glory. And it, it just, it suffers by being cleaned up to that extent. Something about Independence Day that makes it work so well is the practical effects. Mm-hmm. But those practical effects, juxtaposed with the CGI effects in Blu-ray quality, just it, it's really harsh line, harsh mm-hmm. contrast between those two when it's cleaned up to that extent. Mm-hmm. I've been adding a lot of older films to my repertoire too, older, older things mm-hmm. like Night of the Hunter and Citizen Kane, and and it's always a surprise when I put those in to see whether they cleaned everything up and sort of added that shiny coat of paint mm-hmm. that just feels sort of sticky, greasy, uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, what did you put on me? Or whether they didn't. Right. They just sort of made the sound a little crisper and right. nice and fancy. You know, it's the difference between, I guess, <laughs> speaking of the 80s and, oh, the future and technology is cool. You know, it's the difference <laughs> between, oh, here you have a computer and it's a big bulky box thing. Or, oh, here you have a computer and we painted it chrome. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> one just feels weird and the other feels like, oh, okay, good, you made this nicer and more modern. Gotcha. And I, I don't yet have a way to tell when I'm buying them what they're going to be. Right. So it's always a surprise when I put them in for the first time and see what's been done. Mm-hmm. So, Tim, you had, had you watched it on VHS prior to... You would have had to, right? Like that um, was... I don't think I did, no. Because I think... Oh, I think I, I probably saw part of it at my uncle's house, I think. Because um, I think, yeah, he showed me... Um, Probably like one scene. I think that's what kind of you know, just to kind of let me know. Oh, this is what this is about. Um, but I don't. Yeah, scene. I don't think we watched. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Four hours one later. Oh, okay, what that was is one scene? scene. Yeah. yeah. Um, or maybe I did watch the whole thing. I don't. I, I. I mean, I. I only owned it on DVD. I remember at one point it was this kind of like elusive thing, and then oh, you know, now it's out on DVD, and yeah. I can buy it. And, um, and I think I told him about it, like all excited, like hey, it's, he's like, yeah, I know, I have it already. And he's like, oh, okay, of course. <laughs> <you do." laughs> um. So yeah, if if I did see it on VHS, I don't remember. Um, and I think like if I saw it at his house, he has like a huge TV with like this you know, huge surround sound and everything. So it would have been, you know, quite the experience. But but again, back then it was probably when would that have been? Probably like the early two thousands. Okay. So I remember it was when I was I finished my undergrad that's when I was working at Blockbuster and I, <laughs> you know that, that whole frame of reference you know like um, but yeah so I feel like back then you know technology was obviously better and I think you know we had DVDs at that point but we didn't have like Blu-ray where it was just like oh my god it's like you can reach out and touch the people and so I, I don't really remember looking at it going oh this looks weird and oh the, the graininess you know I wasn't gotcha. as like tuned into that as I feel like we are now with like everything getting so crystal clear and everything mm-hmm. um, you know and, and I mean when I watch stuff at home it, like I still had like a tube television so mm-hmm. I mean I was used to that yeah. that and, sort of and maybe what we're used to is a part of that you know because like, yeah. like I said I watched my video cassette of Mask of the Phantasm mm-hmm. you know a bajillion times so yeah. that's just when I picture what's that green, that's yeah. what's what comes up yeah you know maybe if I had been a little younger and the DVD was what I watched maybe I wouldn't notice right I don't know yeah 
That is interesting. Mm. I don't really have a segue into this next topic, but uh, oh well, topic change. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Links are this, fun. Yeah. This film has subtitles, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking at the main menu right now, and our four options are play, scene selection, special features, and subtitles. But of course, there's no dialogue. It's not a single <laughs> word of dialogue. I don't think there's even a single. I guess it's not quite true. There is a spoken word in that there's the chanting in the music. Yes. And they chant the title of the film and then the prophecies at the end. But that's it. Nothing else. But <laughs> subtitling is not just used for dialogue. It's used for ambience. It's used for, you know, door closes, upbeat music, traffic noise, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Early in the film, there was some interior shots of a cave and there were bats. And I could hear, once or twice, I heard winds flapping. Mm-hmm. And maybe I think some of the, the echolocation going on. Mm-hmm. And it struck me, because subtitling is done based on what they they think you would hear. Mm-hmm. A, I guess I'll say hearing person. I'm afraid I don't know the proper terms to use here. But um, what a hearing person would hear, mm-hmm. you know, to fill in someone who can't. And sometimes in other films, I've noticed that they don't quite match up with what I hear. Right. And it made me wonder here. Would we find sounds that we missed because they thought you were supposed to hear them and they put them in the subtitles? Right. If they watched this with subtitles, would it reveal new things to us? It'd be interesting to to watch <clears throat> with them. It would because it gives it gives another another point of the the intent. Right. Another layer of. Because this is what they narrative. intended you to hear. Right, right. exactly. Layer of perceived narrative is a great phrase. I really yeah. like that. Well, also keep in mind, I mean, when this originally came out, it was probably on VHS, and you didn't have the option to switch right. subtitles on and off. Uh, so this was definitely added true. much later. So, so who, who was even responsible for that? Yeah, that, and, and you know. yeah, were they doing it with the whole, you know, for, yeah, for the hearing impaired, we're going to describe what's happening? Or, I mean... Speaking of which... Uh, Wikipedia again. Because of copyright issues, the film was out of print for most of the 1990s. Really? So who knows where that ended up by the time they made the DVD? Right. Who, who did the subtitling? Who was in control? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a really good point, Tim. And that's the thing too. Is like I don't know that back then there was the sensitivity to oh we need to make sure this is accessible for the hearing impaired. Right. Oh, certainly. Like I feel like that's definitely something that's you know issues like that have become more in the in the forefront. Uh, sure. But back then, yeah, I mean, maybe That's, maybe they yeah. just put the words of the chanting, you know, just mm-hmm. like, who knows? Sure, yeah, did they just write, and we haven't, we haven't seen it with the subtitles, yeah. which is why we're asking, but did they just write chanting? Right. Did they write foreign <laughs> language? Did they just show music notes like yeah. they sometimes do? Yeah. You know, or did they uh, write out the words? I almost feel like this would be an interesting film to experiment with, which is odd because it's an experimental film, mm-hmm. but to to watch it purely silent just put it on mute mm-hmm. watch the visuals wash over you and see what your interpretation is then mm-hmm. then watch it with no music but with the caps on and then watch it with the visual aspects mm-hmm. and see how that works and then all three like see if the narrative because sh- I the way my memory works or what I'm remembering about this movie is very it's difficult to find touchstones like we were talking about because there aren't any kind of like events that take place with a a, uh, narrative intent so it would be interesting to watch it these three different ways and see what you miss or pick up on based on the context in which you're viewing it Mm -hmm. again but 
who has time for that? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, and I think like with anything too, and I think we talked about this in the last podcast, like that idea of, you know, each time you see something, you're going to get something new out of it. So yeah, yeah if, one, if one of those journeys you decide to go on is like a purely, you know, visual one, then, you know, yeah, and that's the thing is who's to say that the things you noticed that time were because there was no music or just because that was your second time viewing it kind of where you were at in your life at that point. And, um, yeah, so I guess there's no way to know, but that's, I think that, yeah, that would be, uh, I remember having a similar, well, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, doing watching The Matrix with just the music and the composer commentary, you know, and really, yeah, noticing all the things in the music. I mean, you still had the visual, but you had no dialogue. Right. Um, I don't think you even had uh, sound effects. Um, so that was like a, an interesting thing to kind of move away from the stuff that's right in your face. Hey, hear the words I'm saying. And just to kind of catch all these musical hints and, and nuances and things like that. Um, and, and that was the one that he, you know, I was like thinking, Hey, what about just listening to the music? She's like, yeah, the visuals and then the visuals with the subtitles and then all three. Well, what about just listening to the music? I feel like that would also be kind yeah. of its own journey, no, definitely. you know, and especially since you've, you've seen it, it's probably going to call, Oh yeah, this is when, you know, they're zipping around in the city or this is when they're going on the escalator. I kind of remember that. And, mm -hmm. but, um, I, I don't recommend, I think I have this, uh, the whole soundtrack on my iPod. I don't recommend listening to it while you're driving. Okay. <laughs> you, you definitely like, you know, want to like just tear ass down the highway. And it's like how you felt after Rogue One. Yes. One yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, I should definitely not drive my car after watching a star Wars film. Because all I want to do is go as fast as I can possibly go, and you know, now this yeah. is pod racing. <laughs> no, <laughs> a surprise to be sure, but a welcome one. <laughs> uh, oh man! But yeah, just you know, sitting in my car after that, just being like, "Punch it, Chewy." That, that was more where my head was, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's more where my car was. <laughs> One of the things I had one of one of the things I wanted to point out is what I really like about this film is a lot of the comparisons they make. Um, so, like, there's one scene where it's at the end of all the city stuff, and they kind of zoom out, and there's this overhead view of the city, and then they have like a satellite picture of the city, and then they show like a microchip, and they're like comparing those two things back and forth, and how you know the in the city. Um, you know, and I, while we were watching this, I had said I forget who, but someone had compared those um, the, the 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 sped up. You know, when all the cars are driving, the traffic, the, the traffic and everything, that yeah. it's like blood flowing through veins. Mm -hmm. You know, and you definitely almost yeah get the so sense that it's just like liquid. The city. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, and you know, and then kind of looking at that compared to the microchip, it's like oh well, they're kind of the, the electricity that's driving this machine that's that's that this is running mm -hmm. on. You know, and. Um, you know, to, to make another Matrix reference, like, we're basically the batteries that power this machine of, of you know, of the city and of industry and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So to kind of make those comparisons, those were some things that I saw. And, and even, you know, the idea, and, and I'm still struggling with this word, and I have to have my wife help me, but I think meta is the right term for this, where that original cave drawing is a reference, in a sense, to the entire film. That it's, it's some people's sort of sketches of, oh, this is what, you know humans are and what we're like and uh, kind of like a, a snapshot of this point in time we're going to paint on this cave wall that's you know you know years and years and years and centuries and decades later that's what this film is it's it's a sketch of what 
what human life is, almost like like putting it in a time capsule, you know. And back then they said, oh, here is our life, our world, here are our people and our tribe. And then this film is, well, here are the people in our tribe in, the, you know, the late 70s and early 80s. This is this snapshot of this. And it, it, it included that snapshot, you know. Um, so I thought that was really interesting, you know, that you... In addition, in addition to the the contrast of things like oh, beautiful nature, and oh, here are these machines and industry kind of like taking up and scarring the land. Like you do have the the things that are are the same kind of like looking, uh, you know, those things looking in a mirror. Um, I thought that was really interesting, and um, one of one of my sort of big things that I noticed this time, just kind of like yeah, oh, this is this is this and if this is yeah if, if the city is the microchip and then we are the electricity and you know that whole thing I have seen that city microchip comparison before mm-hmm. visual comparison and I, I honestly can't recall where maybe something to do with Tron or Tron Legacy I don't I can know see that, yeah. but the, the, at the top down view of, yep. a, of a city grid shows up like a mm-hmm. microchip's rigid right angles you know yeah. mm-hmm. and the the whole information travels along these corridors and conduits in the same way mm-hmm. that people, well, I guess, hold information travel along the roads mm-hmm. in the same way that blood travels along our right. roads. Yeah. Makes a nice little through comparison through all three things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, that was another comparison, too, to the video games. Like, how much of those things looked like the video games. You know, yeah. like We have Mrs. Pac-Man where, oh, you're going down all these corridors and mm-hmm. eating all these things, and then, oh, people going on this ex- escalator and going off to work, and you know, like the um, or some of the other the uh, um, the shooting games that they had. Like, uh, oh no, they actually showed like the driving one. I forget yeah. which one it was, but yep. like yeah. you know, switching from it. yeah. It, it started speaking of the video games. It was not quite surprising, but intriguing. I guess it, something that sort of hit me partway through the film. As much as has changed, a lot has stayed the same visually to look at. At least mm-hmm. a lot of the buildings are still big tall glass rectangles mm-hmm. yeah. I'm sure their safety features and the insides have changed a lot yeah. but the outsides still look essentially the same right. you know the video games you know, oh man these cutting edge graphics they get all <laughs> damn pixels in Pac-Man but on the other hand the shots of Grand Central pretty much exactly the same mm-hmm. but of course Grand Central's a landmark but then the shopping malls oh, a yeah, lot yeah. of those shopping malls Layouts except for the, the signs I guess of the stores right. yeah totally exactly the same because the building itself is is always going to serve its same function Mm -hmm. to get people around to stores and be aesthetically pleasing and attract people to buy things so and then nothing we saw was in some sort of weird gaudy 80s coat of paint so it just it struck me how much changes because of practicality and how much changes because of style Mm -hmm. and how much doesn't change at all because it's not touched by either of those things. That's interesting. It is to say, if it isn't touched by either of those things, it's possible, of course, that skyscrapers will look very different one day because of some super crazy safety improvement. You know? mm-hmm. But unless practicality comes along to make something change, if it's not to do with style, it's sort of just going to stay the way it is. Right. Mm-hmm. It's also difficult to build or knock down a skyscraper and then build something in a different shape. Mm-hmm. Surrounded by other <laughs> skyscrapers True, that are right. all rectangular silver bar. True. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I think it, in some ways it shows how certain parts of our development technology, like we have, kind of stagnated. You know, like it was kind of like what I was talking today about, like with electronic music. You know, like with yeah, with skyscrapers, like 
once that decision was made, like, hey, let's build up instead of out, it's like there's no more, like, mind-blowing change that's going to happen. It's just we'll build it taller and taller and taller and out of new materials so that it can compensate for being taller and this and that. But, but yeah, there isn't going to be a probably a drastic, like, oh, let's do an upside-down pyramid. That's way better, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like we were saying with electronic music, like, once the first person did electronic sounds and said, hey, look, this is music now, like, everything that's come after that is because of that. Like, there's... You know that that sort of the advent of electronic music was a huge deal and like completely different than anything done before that. But anything from now on done with electronic music is like, yeah, that's just electronic music. You know, it's a different genre within that genre, but you know, or a different style or different di- different influences, but it's still electronic music. You know, and mm-hmm. we're pro- like, you know, when are we going to get a new thing where someone's like, hey, here's a completely different thing beyond electronic music that we're doing mm-hmm. with music or, 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 techno- or technology in general, you know, like... I am really glad you said that about how much of our, even how much of our predictions of the future has stagnated. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. some things are different, of course. You know, cell phones, lots of wireless. Mm-hmm. Wireless was a big deal. Um, I'm going to geek out for a moment here. One of my favorite authors is William Gibson, sci-fi author. Okay. I don't know if either of you... Uh, Neuromancer, one of his more famous books. He, uh, anyway... One of the, the things that really... One of the best descriptions I ever heard was a YouTube channel, PBS Idea channel, one of their earlier videos. Sci-fi is not about... You know, it's about the far future. You know, here we're, we're here at point A. Sci-fi tells us point C. Gibson was really good at going from point A to point C by way of B. That is mm-hmm. to say, imagining a near future that's very likely and extrapolating the far future from that. And so his worlds feel very plausible, very comfortable, very familiar. And it's funny because Neuromancer, for example, was published in 1984. And yet when I read it for the first time a couple years ago, lots of it was still very comfortable. You know, like when you watch Alien, there's this sort of bulky utilitarianism to Mm -hmm. it that you don't really get in a lot of modern stuff now when we think about space travel or the future. It's all sleek and cool. Uh Neuromancer did not have that problem. It was so very... This is just yeah. I was like, oh yeah. This I I still think this is what the future is going to be like. Gotcha. And yet sometimes it wasn't, you know. Um, and some of that is is to do with his use of brand names in things. Okay. So he will he'll say, you know, when our character is being put up in a fancy apartment by one of their rich mysterious benefactors, you know, stepped over to the shiny brown coffee maker on the counter, and that's is it brown? You know, some German company that makes yeah. kitchen appliances, yeah. and they still do. So okay, mm-hmm. great. But then sometimes they said it was something about a something about like a, a Kodak, gotcha. you know, because yeah. <laughs> oh well, whoops, Kodak has turned out to right. not quite be so prominent anymore. It's kind of like the the Blade Runner projected future of Atari yes. being this retro futurism of sort, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And that sort of detail helps provide a lot of comfortable familiarity with this future world. It provides a lot of comfortable familiarity, but like what you said, so much of that has changed. There's mm-hmm. so much more sleek and wireless and cool, mm-hmm. and, you know, Kodak isn't a big deal anymore. But on the other hand, so much of that is still the same. Mm-hmm. It's the same predicted future that he was writing about in 1984 that yeah. I'm sitting here thinking about now. See, mm-hmm. and there's this other thing where we've reached kind of a stagnation point, but we're, we're now hitting this nostalgia kick. So we found a way to ah. get to a certain <laughs> point, and instead of progressing further than that, we're wanting to make what we had before better, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we can have it again. 
but it's not for its for a, a, a continuation or an improvement upon it and to create something new. Mm-hmm. It's I want to be able to recreate. Well, that's the as a kid when I went to the uh, uh, Walmart. And my parents were like, here's one action figure you can get, right? Mm-hmm. So I would agonize in the aisle, like, I have to pick one that I really, 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 really like. And then I would always have buyer's remorse leaving the, because there was seven other ones I didn't want. Now I can sit down on Amazon, get all 12 that I wanted, <laughs> and it, I'm not looking for the new thing. I'm not, I'm not shopping for the newest, coolest, sleekest Batman figure. I want the one that was popular in 1994. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's... The nostalgia kick is we've stagnated. We, we've gotten to a point with technology and where we're thinking of our future, but instead of looking forward, we're looking back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I, I love that you picked up on that, and that was something I picked up on in the American Gods TV series mm-hmm. that we just did. They they greatly modernized the technical boy, uh, who it, god of technology sort of thing. I, I won't bother to jump deeply into American Gods here at the moment, but basically, when the book first came out, it was a little more '90s, a little more Matrix. You know, a little more cool future. Mm-hmm. But the modernized version they did now has a lot of retroness to it. It's a bit where he steps out of a club and you've got these weird sort of spiraling projection lines at the top of the club mm-hmm. over the door. And I, I remember thinking along the lines of, we love our modern functionality and efficiency, but we are now desperate to dress it up in older retro Drag. aesthetic. Aesthetic, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. That we want it to look like old, but work like new. Yeah, hmm. yeah. You know that, that, that look no longer determines time period. I mean, that's not quite true. Obviously, in the past, but you know that, like with Star Trek, you could make something seem futuristic by the way you made it look. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, it's less about the way it looks and more about what it does. Right. I mean, that's the the, the popularity of the. Um, NES classic mini thing. <laughs> yeah. That's why those things got sold by like hotcakes because it was here's these thirty games that you've been trying to find on eBay for sixty years. Mm-hmm. Well, not sixty years, but like you've been trying to find, and they're all in this one unit. You plug it in; it's got HDMI. Like it's mm-hmm. like you said, functionality, yeah. but in this old school aesthetic. Mm-hmm. I also feel like you know. I wonder if part of it is that we're seeing that we're running out of new ideas and just continually improving on the ideas we have. Mm-hmm. You know, like with technology, it's all about making things smaller and lighter and kind of cramming more stuff into it, which which is good and it kind of streamlines things. But, you know, like, like, like I have a phone that does a hundred things, but none of those things that it does are new. You know, it's all combinations of old things like a phone and a camera and a calendar and all this stuff. But it's it's not new. It's consolidating all right. the stuff that we do normally. And we can do all those things faster. Right. Mm. But it's we're not doing anything new, mm. you know. Mm. And I almost wonder, too, if the retro thing has to do with, um, you know, I've, I've kind of used this metaphor before of, like, you know, you're in this cave and you see some light up ahead, so you start crawling into this little this little path that's leading to the light, and it's getting more and more narrow and narrow, and you're kind of like, okay, I don't know if this is going to get too narrow and I'm not going to be able to fit out. And at some point, you have to decide, I guess, should I just start backing out and mm-hmm. start over from another cave and be like, maybe this entrance will be better. So I almost wonder if that's sort of a thing, is if we're trying to kind of reboot our creativity. Like, let's go back to where we were in the 70s and say, okay, if I'm in the 70s and I'm imagining the future that I want, how do I get there? Instead of just making a smaller and smaller iPhone 
you know, that's that's faster and has more storage. It's like, again, but none of that's new. It's getting better and better, but there's nothing new happening. So maybe we have to start from scratch. And it's <laughs> it also reminds me of a, a fan theory that someone said about um, Back to the Future and why why we don't have hoverboards and they do in Back to the Future is that when Marty McFly went back and showed the that the skateboard to those kids, it sort of ignited that that excitement about that thing. So that Earlier. altered yeah, so that yeah, when he went back to the fifties. So then he created of just showing up the way skateboards sort of Yeah, however they naturally yeah. A lot of the well, was actually the surfer culture. Yeah. And yeah, okay. Whatnot. Instead of just sort of creeping their way in, they were just suddenly the big hit. Right. And that they so they devoted their their technology to creating a newer, better skateboard instead of a newer, better phone or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and that that's why they ended up with the hoverboard because that was where that was the path they took, where they devoted their energy to into creating this 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 physical thing. That, yeah, we can have a better, better skate. Well, what's better than this skate? Oh, if we, instead of the wheels, it floats, and this and this and that, and that's why we don't have it because we're we're more locked into our phones. And Facebook and things like that. We're not as much about the skateboard and going outside and doing that physical kind of stuff, which I thought was interesting. I don't know if that's what they intended, but it was interesting commentary. But nice. but also a way of you know maybe the explanation for that that call to the the retro is like how can I reboot like the path that we're on? Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Reboot our creativity is what you said earlier. That's, oh yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Lots of good phrases coming out of this. But. Yeah, good thing we're recording it. <laughs> we are, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, guys. <laughs> why, 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 is, why is Tim leaving? <laughs> Say everything you just said in the exact same way <laughs> for an hour. I don't know if we're going to top reboot our creativity. So I was, I was going to ask... Um, Reoccurring segment because we did it last time. Um, did anybody have any ideas about uh, film recommendations, situational film recommendations for this week? What do you watch when you're testing out new hardware you bought, new speakers or TV? You know, something that really Ooh. meant something that's meant to enhance your viewing experience. What is the film you put in to see how much better it is? That is a good one. Oh, I have my answer. Go for it. Go for it. Yeah. So the scene, and, and this is actually back in the day. If it's Matrix again. <laughs> it is. Of course it is. Of course it is. Although is I, I had a realization. I always talk about Blockbuster and always talk about the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> um, this Back in the day, I actually had a stereo that I bought that had like surround sound speakers. And I hooked my DVD player. And this is before I moved out to Colorado, back when I lived in Rhode Island. And. Um, Whenever someone came over, like I would show this to them. I'd be like, "Listen to this subwoofer." This was like my, I think my first. Ex- well, aside from my uncle who introduced me to Koyaanisqatsi, like his was the first sound system I ever heard with a subwoofer. So this was sort of my my that moment. Um, so it's the scene from The Matrix where, a spoiler alert. So <laughs> when they when they bring Neo in, and they're, they're going to kind of wake him up out of the Matrix. And it starts with the part where he's sitting there and they've got everything connected to him and he took the pill and he's looking at the mirror and he sticks his fingers in it and he goes as the mirror is like vibrating after it kind of comes together. So like that, you like all of a sudden, yeah, the subwoofer, like the room is just vibrating. And then it goes from that scene to finally when he wakes up and it's like, you know, the super chaotic of just like, oh my God, where the hell am I? I'm in this pod and there's this robot that's coming down. It's unscrewing this thing from my head and this and that. And like, there's the choir as he's like looking out to see and just like, so that, that whole scene is just this like 
you know this smorgasbord of of sound and sound effects and music and you know and again like you you hear so like through almost that whole scene like the subwoofer is just like pumping and the room is vibrating um so yeah so that scene is my my testament of Mm -hmm. of good viewing and listening technology Mm -hmm. if it's a visual it's or maybe just general film it's it's usually blade runner (laughs) which is also one of my favorite you know no it's my favorite film Oh. Out of the things that keep cycling through one of my sections, that's the only one that's ever really stuck around. So you know what? Yeah, that's my favorite film. <laughs> um, it's so over. It's just beautiful to behold. It's a spectacle, you know, the visual, and, and also I just enjoy watching it. Yeah. So it's something that I know well enough to pick up on my improvements. But if it's sound, it's uh, Fury, the tank movie that oh, Brad Pitt wow. was in. I, oh, yeah. seen I saw that, that in a one. theater, and. I know a lot of people like to say Saving Private Ryan, and there are two problems with that. One, I uh, don't actually own it yet. Ooh, confession. Um, and two... How dare you? I, I didn't see it in a theater. Fury oh. I saw, and there was the scene where they're advancing across the hedgerows with the infantry tucked in behind them, firing at the German lines on the other side. The anti-tank guns are firing. I saw that with my dad, and I remember that scene perfectly because of the sound. I just... That was... One of like sort of a revelation for me in film sound. There's a particular shot where one of the anti-tank guns fires, and the shell bounces off the armor of one of the Shermans and whips off into the distance. So you hear it, you know, ping as it goes, and oh, that just stunned me. So that's what I put in for sound. Nice. Oh yeah, nice. This is a difficult one. We can buy you some time if you like. Well, so for commercial break, this, is, <laughs> this podcast go to is been go support Tim. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're speaking of retro things. Let's yeah. Kind rewind. Um, oh, that was a great movie too. <laughs> um, if it's a specific scene in a movie for sound, when what, what have I done? <laughs> I set the precedent to break things. Well, up. No, no, no. Like for first John Wick, mm. when he revs up that car. <laughs> oh yeah. I feel like I bought that film before I had seen it. Like, I, I knew I was going to like it because it had been highly recommended. I was house-sitting for my parents. They have a huge, like, a really good sound bar, huge 50-inch TV. Mm-hmm. I was by myself. I was sitting and eating a bowl of chili. And I put on that movie, and it's outstanding. It's, what, it's like, mm-hmm. one of the best action movies the last ten years. Oh, yeah. I would agree. And... He revs up. It's a Mustang, right? It, it's this. It's this nasty, growly American muscle, <laughs> and it just rumbled the whole house. Nice. And it, it, it just to test out some speakers. That's the one you do. Mm-hmm. Another sound-wise, Star Wars. Oh yeah. I mean, oh, you get yeah. that flourish going, oh, and gosh. you got Star Destroyer coming over the top. You're gonna get the visual aspect and the room shaking. I mean, that's about as good a, a baseline as you could get. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you're gonna hear like you're gonna be testing that sound system throughout that whole movie. Yeah. And that, that that's about the pinnacle of visual. And I mean, that that's usually what I put on. Fantastic. That's a good one. <laughs> nice call. Oh, sweet. Thank you. Yeah. John was at, at work. My my friend John. Oh, John from the Nerd the Geek section. Yeah, our <laughs> friend. Our you know, friend. You, you know John. <laughs> you should. Uh, he was talking about he got new speakers. I think last week. Mm-hmm. So he's been talking a lot lately about trying films with the new speakers yeah. now and going, "Oh, this was so great and that was so great." And so, so 
Sorry. reminded me of that. Did he have any ants particular that he was excited about? Yeah, Presumably he was Star telling Trek. Me about today, but I actually can't remember what it was. Gotcha. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, listeners. I've disappointed you all. And we're sorry, Let John, you down. for not knowing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, John, for not listening to you. Maybe it was the, the season finale of last season's Walking Dead and the season premiere of this one, because he really wanted to make sure that that <laughs> oh. skull squishing. <laughs> no, it was a film. Spoiler alert. It was definitely a film. <laughs> Negan's terrible. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I didn't say whose. Oh, well, I ruined it. See, I, <laughs> no, no, you didn't either, because Negan's the one doing the crushing. Right. We yeah, we did not spoil who That's right, true. That's who bad true. things happen to. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, that concludes what uh, what we're calling a cycle, our first cycle yeah. of movie mumble in which each of us has picked a film. And they've all been great. Yeah. It's been I, a great yeah, first cycle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our next month's podcast is actually going to be a a recap of sorts. I don't want to... Not necessarily a recap. We're not going to go over all the films again, t- tell you all the plots. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of a chance to hit the major points and maybe talk about things we missed or wish we could have talked about. Things that we only thought up in hindsight yeah. or with the benefit of time. You know, just, just sort of touch on them all again, wrap things up yeah. in a nice little bow before we move on to another cycle. Yeah. But after that, we will begin another cycle and it will be Joel's turn to pick. Joel... What are you going to have for us two months from now? Oh, it's going to be exciting. Um, so, for my pick, we're going to do On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, yes. 1969 James Bond film, the only one to star Lazenby. George Lazenby. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorites. And I I only recently watched it. Like, I watched it for the first time as an adult. Yeah. So, it's it, it's going to be fun. Um, so, kind of just IMDb um, blurb here. James Bond woos a mob boss's daughter and undergoes under or, and goes undercover to uncover the true reason for Blofeld's allergy research in the Swiss Alps that involves beautiful women from around the world. Mm-hmm. That's going to be really great. I, I mean, I've seen it before. I don't know if you have too. No. But besides, besides that, just talking about Bond films, I yes. think is going to be great. They could be their own podcast. Yes. Know? There actually is a great podcast called <laughs> the James Bonding Podcast. Well, there you go. <laughs> and they talk about every iteration of the, the series. I'm excited to talk about what what, a, what Bond films are and about Lazenby in particular. Yes. And that sort of thing. So, and I have a very particular memory of this film. But I, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. That'll all be in a couple more episodes. Yes. There's the sixth film in the series yes according to Wikipedia and this is the man that they <laughs> chose to piss off uh, Sean Connery <laughs> well I guess it worked because then he came back he came right back and uh, Lazenby was out so <laughs> there you are so Tim thank you for bringing this one yes, to thank us thank you so much this was a delightful experience a lot of fun so certainly opened opened me up to the visual tone poems genre. Yeah. Should I say genre? I don't know. The visual tone poems as a whole. As I mentioned, there were things that I was always sort of interested in, but just let fall to the side. Much like the Kung Fu movies yeah. <laughs> that you brought to me. And this has certainly made me feel much more motivated to get out and find some other ones. Speaking of that, I, there have been several times over the last couple of weeks where I've seen anime uh, Recommendations on Netflix, and I almost <laughs> clicked it as a result of us watching Skycrawler. So, thank you for that <laughs> added temptation. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> you ever need more temptation? I'm your guy. I'm your guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Come a little closer, Tim. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, thank you all very much for listening. Uh, We hope you have a wonderful month, and we'll hope to see you next time on Movie Mumble. Have a good night, everybody. Bye. Bye.